0: Chat.
1: Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here.
0: <laughs> one of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people <gasps> making fun of white people.
1: Senators have been dropping like flies recently.
0: Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles-Carter family, women just have one name.
1: Backchat Chat on FBI Radio
2: because I'm happy to sit here and name every young woman in Mr Shorten's office over which rumours in this place abound. If you want to go down that path today, right. I will do it. <laughs> That's some nonsense. And you, so, well, do you want to start naming them? Do you want to start naming them for Mr Shorten to come out no, and deny any of the rumours that have been
1: circulating this building now
2: for many, focus
1: on many my questions. years?
0: Damn, that was a Senate, Senator Michaela Cash arguing with Labor Senator Doug Cameron. Michaelia,
1: uh, <laughs> drink from the poison chalice. Drink from the
0: poison chalice, drink, drink from the chalice of blood, in the spoils. <laughs> um, that was obviously the, the infamous exchange in estimates this week, uh, where the Minister for Jobs and Innovation, the former Minister for Women, Women threatened to uh, publicise rumours um, uh, impacting uh, female staffers in Labor leader Bill Shorten's office kind of took a lot of the attention of this week's political coverage and it ended on Thursday with Cash trying to avoid media scrutiny ...by uh, enlisting security guards to cover her with a whiteboard as she moved around Parliament House. Um, but you're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, 94.5 FM, and streaming on Radio.com. It's the freshest wrap of news and current affairs on the radio, and I'm your co-host, Osman Faruqi.
1: And I'm Ariel Bogle.
0: And while we focused a lot this week on federal parliament, in particular, Senate estimates and, and the cash saga... It was also the final week of the Tasmanian election campaign, which is being held today, this Saturday, in, in the, the Apple Isle. Do you know why we call it the Apple Isle? Are there lots of apples there?
1: One assumes. I've actually never <laughs> been to Tasmania. <laughs> really? Yeah, this it's a good really place. Um, a bad thing on my part. I've been to almost every other Aussie state. Yeah. Not I mean,
0: they have cider, which comes from apples, so I presume there are apples there. Yep. Um, anyway, yep. apples were not a significant election issue in this election, as far as I'm aware. But there were some. Pokies. Pokies, poker machines were one of the the key battlegrounds for the Tasmanian election, which pits sitting Premier Will Hodgman from the Liberal Party up against Labour's Rebecca White. And the Labour Party, uh, towards the end of last year, announced what is quite a radical policy uh, in terms of Australian politics to basically outlaw poker machines from pubs and clubs across the state. It would make Tasmania the first state to do that in a very, very long time. Uh, And it's kind of become the key issue because the pokies lobby is not happy. The Liberal Party opposes the plan and the pokies lobby has been flooding the state with cash to run TV ads and newspaper ads.
1: Well, it looks like that, but Tasmania actually has different um, transparency laws around their election spending. So we actually don't know the full extent to which outside pokie money essentially has been pouring into the state but it certainly looks like that. Um, there is only one company, the federal company, that has the rights to pokies in the state of Tasmania and they have been pushing hard, it looks like. And it's a really interesting um, issue, I think. And perhaps, you know, whether Labor wins or the Liberal Party wins, it sort of marks the beginning of a new conversation about pokies in Australia because we have always talking about the impact money has um, in the American election, um, money from the gun lobby, for mm. example, mm. But there's an argument to be made that in Australia, the pokey money, the gambling money, has as, as big an influence and it's something we need to get less addicted to.
0: Totally. And, you know, Australia per capita has more poker machines than anywhere else in the world. We, I think, lose... And we spend more. We spend more. It's like $33 billion a year goes down the pokies drain in Australia. Yeah.
1: So it's quite an ambitious policy from Labour leader Rebecca White. And if she's successful, it will be incredibly interesting to watch um, that policy play out. Um, of course, it comes across um, in a background. Um, this week, it, uh, there was reports that Woolworths has been spying on some of its customers that uh, use yeah, the pokies. Right.
0: Woolworths well, owns a lot of uh, pubs and clubs and poker exactly. licenses across the country. Yeah,
1: Um. Yeah, those allegations were made by Andrew Wilkie, um, the politician, who independent politician who's always been big on this issue. From Tasmania as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest, most interesting issues around the Tasmania election. But um, abortion is also one. I think we take abortion for granted here in Australia. We think it's accessible, but actually in some states it's not. So uh, Tasmania's only surgical abortion clinic closed down last year, and Labor has promised to fund abortions in public hospitals if it wins um, that's another important issue that might be mattering, ma- matter to some of the Tasmania electorate. Yeah,
0: one of the concerns is that, well, with that surgical clinic closing down, women who uh, need to access abortion services will have to fly to the mainland, which is obviously a cost in position, a time in position that puts it out of the reach of many people. Tasmania, people might not know because if you've been to Tasman- uh, been to Hobart or you your knowledge of Tasmania is like the very fancy, very flash Mona uh, gallery, it's actually one of the least wealthy states That's right in Australia. Uh, and, you know, so when you talk about restricted services or things costing a lot more money, that, that uh, detrimentally impacts, you know, poorer people from Tasmania more than it does the rest of the population. Um, and it's interesting to see abortion emerge as a political battleground now. We, mm. As you mentioned, Ariel, like I think a lot of people in Australia do take it for granted. A lot of yeah. states have liberalized laws recently, um, but a lot haven't. Yeah, uh,
1: it remains a battleground issue in states like Queensland and now Tasmania too.
0: Um, In New South Wales, where it still is in the Crimes Act as well. But on election eve, another issue kind of came out of nowhere. It's still with gun control, believe it or not. This is Australian politics we're talking about, not the US. So we obviously had the very tragic shooting last week in Florida. We talked about it last week on the show and these attempts and these campaigns in the US to restrict access to guns. But now it's emerged that the Tasmanian Liberal Party has announced to the gun lobby, they didn't publicise this, they just told the gun lobby that they would wind back some of the state's gun laws, and one of those windbacks would include giving sports shooters the right to access rapid-fire shotguns, for example, which has been a big battle between the gun control lobby and and the pro-gun lobby. But they didn't tell the public about that, and it only emerged yesterday, literally the day before the election, when someone leaked a letter the Tasmanian government, Tasmanian Liberal Party had sent to the gun lobby. And it's kind of gotten people pretty freaked out. Tasmania is obviously the state where the Port Arthur massacre occurred, which led Mm. to John Howard implementing gun control, the National Firearms Agreement. basically
1: the birthplace of Australian um, gun control, uh, the the latest iteration of gun control, that is. And I found uh, Liberal Premier Will Hodgman's excuse for only having told some groups about this, you know, quite... Hmm. uh, What's the word? Offensive, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. What did he He say? He said he was only telling um, groups about policies that were relevant to them as if a winding back of gun control laws would be irrelevant to the, to the average rest of Tasmanian the population. who might be the ones most impacted by easier access to guns.
0: For sure. One of the um, one of the survivors of the Port, Port Arthur Massacre, who was one of the biggest proponents of gun control in the 90s, has come out and said that this is a betrayal. And if you remember, it, it was the Liberal Party. It was a federal Liberal government under John Howard that introduced gun control. And it, it, what what I find interesting about this is that the government Firstly, thought they could sneak this policy through. And then secondly, like most polls suggest that the Liberal Party is likely to win this election. So if they do win and they do wind back these gun laws, what would that say for the rest of the state? Because you'd think if there was one state where this would create the kind of backlash that would make it impossible to happen, it would be Tasmania. But, you know, in New South Wales, we've got two members of parliament who are from a party called the Shooters Party, who regularly lobby the government to wind back gun laws. So, you know, we might see these discussions happen all across the country. While at the same time Australians are getting on their high horse and telling America to implement Australia's gun control.
1: Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a little bit ironic, as Alanis Morissette once <laughs> said. But um, it it will be very interesting to see how the t- uh, election plays out today. Some estimates suggest it's the most expensive Tasmanian election ever, wow. as in the most money was spent on it, um, probably by outside groups.
0: Driven uh, driven by the driven by lobby, that pokey
1: but... band. So. It'll be one we'll be mulling over, I suppose, uh, no matter who wins.
0: For sure. Look, well, coming up on the show, we're going to be talking about a, a new report that came out this week detailing decades of instances of sexual assault, harassment, and hazing at university campuses across Australia. That's coming up, but right now we're going to play this tune from Akenyo. It's called ISO. You're
1: listening to Backchat on FBI 94.5. That was Akenyo with the song ISO. Uh, We're about to talk about campus sexual assault, so trigger warning on that, and if you want to text in if it raises any issues for you, it's 0409 945 945. We'd love to hear from you. So for Australian uni students, O-Week is a long-standing tradition. You probably remember it, you get to know new students, you join some clubs, you go to some parties, but for women it can be the most dangerous week of the year. The NRAPE on Campus group has published The Red Zone, which details assault and abuse on campus. And they say universities have turned a blind eye for too long. Uh, today we have Anna Hush joining us. She's an ambassador for Rape on Campus and the co-author of the Red Zone report. Hi, hey, Anna.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming on. So walk us through the report. What are some of the key findings?
2: Yeah, so we've called it the Red Zone report because, as you said, OWAC uh, is statistically the most dangerous time of of. Uh, the university year for women on campus, um, 1 in 12 sexual assaults will happen uh, during O-Week and so in the report basically we focused on residential colleges at the University of Sydney um, and also a few other campuses around the country and we found that really the same traditions that um, are going on now have been going on for, for many, many decades. So. We put together a timeline of um, media reporting of sexual assault and sexual harassment and hazing and it goes back to the 1930s, we found. So, yeah, these things have really been going on for almost a century and colleges have known about them and they really have done very little to to stop them.
0: And there was a Human Rights Commission report last year that looked at sexual harassment and its prevalence on campus, but you guys have chosen to focus on colleges in particular. Why is that?
2: So one of the reasons that we focused on colleges was... Um, in part due to the Liz Broderick report that came out uh, early this year, which was after an investigation she did into the colleges. And we sort of felt that her report was missing a lot of that historical context and a lot of uh, the sort of analysis of the, the culture of the colleges, which is very masculine, it's very elitist, um, you know, it's also very racist and homophobic. And so we wanted to sort of, yeah, paint a bit of a fuller picture of, of what college culture is like.
1: Tell us about some of the things you guys found in terms of those rituals that might um, target women or target people of colour. Um, what were some of those
2: examples? So I think, I mean, a big theme running throughout them is is alcohol, um, which is kind of tricky because it's obviously not a cause of mm. sexual assault. But it's mm. used, we see it as a tool that's used to facilitate things like harassment and sexual assault. So I think as soon as uh, college students arrive, they are... Uh, pressured to drink really copious amounts of alcohol and that just makes them more vulnerable to uh, these other kind of rituals. And so I think what happens after that is just a, you know, slow violation of of all of their boundaries progressively. Um, And there's an immense amount of pressure to participate in these kind of initiation rituals because they, you know, they've just moved to college. It's a new social environment. They desperately want to fit in. So, you know, there's things like um, they're forced to wake up at 4am, they have alcohol poured all over their breakfast. Uh, they have to remove clothes, they have to run around naked outside, um, you know, all sorts of things, really.
0: And the, the Red Zone Report is a, is a very comprehensive document, but it's it's hardly the first time your group, or, or for that matter, other activists have raised these kinds of issues, whether it's college-specific or more university-wide problems. And as you point out in the report, universities haven't really responded. Has there been a shift this week from the Red Zone Report? Are you seeing more engagement or acknowledgement from universities?
2: Um, I mean, I think universities have been forced to respond, um, so a lot of universities have like put out statements, but it's really the, the same kind of language we've seen in the past, which is, you know, we take this very seriously, we're doing everything we can. Um, I think what's also interesting about the university response is how universities really distance themselves from colleges, mm. and we heard that from Michael Spence, the You vice Chancellor who said they're completely independent institutions like we have nothing to do with them
1: legally right they're not they're on different sort of legal terms um, under state law
2: yeah, so the colleges are, are founded in these acts of state parliament uh, that give them these kind of this autonomy to govern themselves and yeah the university doesn't technically own the land that the colleges are on but I think universities still have you know some like the colleges are affiliated to the universities, vice chancellors obviously have an enormous amount of of power in society and I think if they wanted to step up and really condemn what's happening at the colleges they could do that.
0: And I mean everyone who is enrolled and lives at these colleges also attends the university so it's not as though they're in a different universe. Exactly
2: yeah they're, they're very intertwined as institutions.
1: It really feels like um, these this college situation is passed down from a kind of UK model of elite institutions, you know, Eton to Cambridge to wherever. Like the idea of having um, colleges with these names like John, St. John's, you know, it's, it feels like quite archaic at the moment. I uh, Do you think there's a mood for change that these colleges can find, I mean, new, healthier rituals to sort of um, help people like acclimatised university life in a new way?
2: I mean, I think that's the big question, whether we can retain colleges and, you know, change their culture in a kind of comprehensive way or whether, you know, maybe they're not part of um, the kind of education system that we want in Australia going forward. And I think that that's been a big part of the student response to the report, um, students have been pretty loud and clear in saying shut down the colleges. We don't want them on our campuses. They're very, you know, they're the, these archaic, elitist institutions um, where you know the wealthy kids go to play, and it's just yeah, it's not part of a, a fair education system.
0: So, talking about the student response, it was a week this week. The report was timed to to kind of um, generate a bit of a bit of media around that. Have you spoken to students on campuses, uh, and if so, what what's their reaction been to this report?
2: Um yeah, I mean I have I was at um O week the other day and I think a lot of people were pretty shocked by by the report. Um I guess cuz there's like the colleges are so insular that we don't we often don't hear stories coming out of them. Um and definitely I don't think we've seen them in one place before like we um yeah, like the red zone report. Mm. So yeah, I think the mood was pretty pretty shocked and outraged and yeah, rightfully so. Like these things are really horrific, and that it's it it is shocking that they're still happening in in twenty eighteen. So,
1: to full disclosure, I went to a college at ANU down in Canberra. Well, when you come from you know when you come from interstate and you go to the university and you're trying to figure out where to live, they tell you they tell you to go to these colleges, and that's where for somewhere like ANU is probably different in Sydney, where there's a lot of places to live. But to go to Canberra, there is like if you aren't from Canberra. It is your option. Everybody lives in some sort of college setting. And I think a lot of the rituals stem from, yeah, as you mentioned, like wanting to belong, wanting to find your place amongst this whole new cohort, hundreds and hundreds of new people. So is there... And I think it's kind of human instinct to look for some sort of ritual to mark a new beginning, especially for a university, you know, you've left high school now, you're a pseudo adult of some sort. (laughs) Is there a way to build healthy rituals or do we just need to like get rid of this entirely?
2: Um, You know, I think there's space for like, you know, partying and and having fun for new students. Um, But I think, I mean, I think things like consent education are a really important part of that. And I think that's what allows you to have these, you know, like have awake parties or welcome parties. Um, that don't end up in you know sexual assault or like violation of people's personal boundaries um, and I think that 's like a really clear thing that colleges and universities can do to try and make these these kinds of spaces safer
0: one of the things that i I'm, I'm particularly interested in in, in the kind of Interested is not the right word, but I'm trying to be measured rather than like come out and wear my politics on my sleeve on this one. But um, where I went to university UNSW, uh, most of the colleges there on campus were prioritized for students from outside of the city. And so they were given, I guess, you know, more beneficial access to the colleges. And I'm not saying that they don't have their issues because they absolutely do. And there was a high profile incident either last year or the year before about some pretty misogynistic chance at the UNSW colleges. But most of the stories we hear and including in the Red Zone report, Anna, kind of do focus on these really elite colleges, particularly the ones at Sydney University. And I'm wondering whether you have any insight or thoughts onto whether there's something particularly toxic about this culture of whether it's the all-male nature of it, the fact that they're coming from elite schools. Like, Is there something there that inherently promotes that kind of culture, or am I just being a class warrior for the sake of it?
2: (laughs) No, I I mean, I think there is. I think it's I think we need to understand sexual assault and harassment and hazing as fundamentally about power, so like about people in power feeling entitled to um you know to get what they want, and you know that often involves like violating people who are less power than mm. who have less power than them and so I think when you've gone through you know private boys' high school in Sydney, maybe you've boarded the whole time and then you get to college and you just kind of continue having that. Um, sort of luxury lifestyle uh, in these very elite spaces, I think it does breed a culture of, of entitlement. And I think that that leads to, yeah, leads to violence. But I also think that, like, these these are problems at colleges around the country. I think there maybe is just more scrutiny on the UCEDD colleges mm, because mm. of their kind of reputation and yep. tradition. And they're the oldest colleges in the country. So I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, interesting. And so NREAP on
1: campus has been doing a lot of really powerful work in this area, um, multiple reports, a lot of um, work in the media. So what's next for you guys? Um, is there going to be a follow-up to the Red Zone report looking at different universities or what's next?
2: Yeah, I think there's. we definitely need to do more research into rural and regional universities because we know that those unis often have, um, you know, they don't have many services on campus. They don't have things like um, counselling services or medical services, uh, and often people are less likely to report their sexual assaults at those, at those campuses. But some of them, like the University of New England, had the highest rates of sexual violence in the Human Rights Commission's inquiry. So they're definitely, um, yeah, they're not immune to these problems. And I think we need to shift the focus a little bit from these really elite institutions.
0: Awesome. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM and streaming on FBIRadio.com. We're just talking to Anna Hush, one of the co-authors of The Red Zone Report, looking at college harassment, sexual assault and hazing. Anna, thanks for joining us on Backchat this morning.
2: Thanks for having me. You're
0: going to stick around and and do roulette with us, which is (laughs) happening right now. Backchat roulette. area. what you got?
1: Ayo, so... An article on um, Stat News. It's a website that looks a lot of really interesting medical stories but this headline... This, this is, sounds
0: exciting already. Yeah. Yeah. Statistics about So I want to talk medicine. about
1: yeah, some stats. So... Um, <laughs> But this headline will grab your attention, I think, just like it grabbed mine. (laughs) How a society gala was used to sell young blood transfusions to baby boomers desperate to cheat death.
0: (laughs) Damn, that has grabbed my attention.
1: Yeah, this is a movie I think we've all seen, (laughs) uh, where rich old people buy the blood of the young to extend their lives. Um, It's happening. It's for real.
0: So this is a real thing that occurs?
1: Well, you know, um, in the article, the journalist talks to a bunch of independent medical experts about the reality of the um, blood transfusion on offer down in Florida, of course. Um, And they're saying, well, no, it's, it's not looking fully above board, but I feel like we're on our way to some sort of young... Old blood transfer.
0: Man, rent is high. If I can make some extra cash by selling my yeah. pure, pure millennial blood, I'm happy to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, keep
2: it in your back pocket for a rainy day.
0: <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, Anna, you've got something for us as well.
2: Yeah, so there were a couple of articles published this week, um, I think on Junkie and BuzzFeed, about um, Clive Palmer's new mm. Facebook meme group, the Palmy Army. The Palmy Army. And God, is Clive Palmer not done yet? Are, <laughs> we, not, are we not done I pie? thought he was done. He's back. He's back with a vengeance. <laughs> And so he started this meme group. It like has tens of thousands of people all of a sudden, and it just descended really quickly into this like racist, sexist, <laughs> like
0: nationalistic hellhole. It's like a perfect case study for the internet in twenty eighteen. Yeah,
2: exactly. It was just it was so
1: quick.
0: That's fascinating. Clive, yeah, a-
1: does Clive like this, or is this like?
2: Is this Clive's vibe? I think Clive refuses to comment formally on okay. it, but I think you know we all know who's behind it. Really. Yeah,
0: I mean, I just bring back the the days of Grog Dog. You know, there were the poetry. Now <gasps> yeah. we've got now we've got Peppy and uh, neo-Nazi memes coming out of Clive Palmer's. But to answer your question, so he's, he's reforming the Palmer United Party. Oh yeah, they're coming back. Yeah. They're trying to great. Run for election again in case White, you miss... Whiteboards and pups, yeah. you know. The good old days of Ricky Muir, Jackie Lambie. Glenn, remember Glenn Lazarus? Remember those days?
1: Like Lazarus. He like, always... Yeah, he was... Been... <laughs>
0: oh, terrible. Um, my one is is kind of um, just, just just a quick one. It's Atlanta, the TV show, season two. Donald Glover's um, brilliant uh, kind of comedy drama. I don't even know if you should call it a comedy. Like, it's funny, but it's also very bleak. Anyway, the first season um, was one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. And season two is being fast-tracked on SBS. Sounds like it's an ad. I'm not being paid by SBS to say that. It just <laughs> is fast-tracked. You can check it out on SBS On Demand. The first step is up. And it is, it's is—it's only 20 minutes long, but it's one of the best 20 minutes of television I've ever seen. And I watch a lot of television. So you yeah. all should check it out.
1: And as a sort of side case, there's a great profile of... Well, great. I don't know. There's a long profile of <laughs> Donald Glover in The New Yorker, which I think is a great accompaniment just to, like, mull over some of the themes and... I would say it's not. It's a controversial article in that I think Donald Glover is just like refuses to reveal who he really is to anyone. Mm. So you can read between the lives, lines on that profile and then watch Atlanta and then see what you think.
0: Make up your own mind. That's awesome. Well, that's all we've got time for on Backchat. Happy Election Day to everyone down in Tasmania tuned in. Uh, thanks to our digital producer, Amelia Zhao, and our EP, Natalie Sekolovska. And thanks again, Anna, for joining us on Backchat this morning. We're going to leave you with this tune from Janelle Monáe. It's a new one, Make Me Feel. Got a sick video too, so check it out if you vibed this song. Have a great weekend, folks.